this morning. We've been talking about the book of Revelation, and the message today is the church, the good and the bad. And the church has both, as you can see from the book of Revelation in the two, uh, chapter 2 and 3, where Jesus talks to the seven churches that are mentioned there. Now, I'm going to start by saying that last week we talked about who the angels were, um, the stars that are mentioned in the, um, at the beginning of uh, each, each church, in the letter to each church. And in chapter 1, verse 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So the stars, or the angels, literally meaning messenger, uh, refers to those who are in primary leadership roles in the church, particularly in a teaching role, uh, often the role assumed by a pastor. So those are... Uh, there's so much that we talked about last week in terms of the role of a pastor. If you didn't hear that message, I really encourage you to go online and hear it. Now, having said that, I need to say that pastors are not the only ones who have the, who've been charged by Christ to lead the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, we read, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." So there is the purpose of leadership in the church. It's to bring the body of Christ into the fulfillment of their roles, of all the things that God has called every member of the church to experience. So I'm here not to be the minister, but to help equip you to minister and to raise the body up to do the work of the ministry, as this text says. Now, the idea of a star... uh, as I said last week, the pastor in reference, referring to the pastor as a star, that doesn't mean he's a superstar or, you know, movie star, That not that kind of, it's not about preeminence, it's not, it's not about importance, but it's a ver- very much an image that occurs through scripture. Uh, for example, in Genesis chapter 37, uh, verses 9 to 11, it's the story of Joseph, we read that he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. Well, who does he think he is? (laughs) So that's what the brothers thought. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and the father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? So the father, the son, the mother, the moon, and the 11 stars are the 11 brothers. And his brothers envied him. But the father kept the matter in mind. So maybe there's something to this. Anyway, they're the... The 11 brothers are referred to as stars that bowed down to him, and he's a star. 
in the book of Revelation, we see more, and there's more in the Bible. I'm just going through this really, really quickly. But in Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 to 4, we read another reference to the idea of, of stars and what they symbolize. And it says, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And we'll talk about what that means uh, at another time. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now, he's not talking about the literal constellations or the stars of the heavens, but he was talking about the created angels who joined Lucifer in his rebellion against God and how in, when they did that, it's like the dragon, which is the devil, drew them into uh, his rebellion and they were cast to the earth. Now, it's interesting. People say, why did God send them to the earth? And then whenever God created man, knowing that the devil were here on the earth and his angels were here on the earth, why did he put us here? Interesting question to talk about sometime, but not this morning. Uh, I want to go through the, the, the seven uh, uh, letters of, book, of chapter 2 and chapter 3, and I want to talk about the good things and the bad things. It's very important for us to understand these principles. So... Just as there were seven stars, which are pastors, seven distinct messages, um, letters, seven uh, lampstands, um, there are clearly seven divisions in each letter. So first, in each of the letters to each church, you'll find a greeting. And uh, the greeting is identical in each one. So Jesus addresses each church in exactly the same way. And uh, he, he refers to um, the angel of the church, and now to the angel of the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So, yeah. uh, to the angel of the church, right. So it's the exact same salutation or greeting in each one. Second, there's a reference in each letter to Jesus, the Son of Man, as he was portrayed in the first chapter. So you see all of the pictures, all of the images of Jesus in the first chapter, and, and the letters pull from, or Jesus pull himself, giving the message to John to give to the churches, pulls from those descriptions of himself found in the first chapter and brings them into um, the, to each of the letters. And actually, I have a, a section on that in the notes that I won't get into this morning. So if you want to pick up a copy of the notes, you can. They'll be online this week, and printed copies will be available next week, and you can be able to study this first. And then third, in each church... He commends them. He praises them for the good things that are in that church. And uh, he celebrates with them the good things. And then fourth, he brings condemnation or reproof or rebuke to the church or to the churches. The only two that did not receive those rebukes was the church at Smyrna and at the church at Philadelphia. 
but all the rest received a con- condemnation. He rebuked them for some things that they had accepted and were practicing in the church. And the fifth part of each letter is that he gave a warning and an admonition to repent. You'll see the word repent, repent, repent in five of the seven churches. And sixth, he talks about a reward, um, a specific reward promised to those who are victorious and who overcome. Uh, and the rewards are amazing. And the, the rewards are within everyone's grasp. There's something to fight for. There's something to believe for. There's something to surrender your life for. And, uh, of course, it's Jesus and his church. And finally, the refrain or the ending. And every church has exactly the same ending. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the church. So, um, now let's talk about some bad things. Everybody cover their ears. You don't want to hear this. Uh, now you better keep them unpl- <laughs> uncovered. We all need to hear it. The first thing is in chapter 2, verse 4, the church at Ephesus. And he makes this statement, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This was incredibly significant. In fact, uh, you're going to find that everything else really hinges on this one. And uh, I'll talk about that a little more at the end of the message. Second, in the church of Pergamos. I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, again, we'll talk about that more at another time, but the idea of a stumbling block is anything which causes another person uh, to fall into sin to fall into temptation, and then sin. And in this instance, it had to do with idolatry and sexual immorality. Um, That's the story of Balaam and Balak, and you could find it in, in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament in chapter 22. Third, the bad things, Pergamos. You also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, here's a, that's, I mean, how, how more powerful of a word can that be that Jesus hates something? Uh, he doesn't hate people. Uh, he loves people. But he hates this doctrine. It's called the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And uh, well, if Jesus hates something, don't you think we should find out what it is? Well, there's two main interpretations. The first one is, uh, and you can notice in the word Nicolaitans, L-A-I-T is kind of the center of the word. And from that, you can take the word or make the word laity. So it is considered that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, if you will, Uh, has to do with separation in the body of Christ between those who are professional clergy, professional ministers, 
and those who are the members of the congregation or the laity. And so over the years, there has been the development of the idea that the minister is better than, is closer to God than, and who alone ministers the graces of God to the church and through the church. And so you have uh, churches that the only person who can who can serve the communion is the pastor or designated elders or bishops. When in fact, that's never the intention. In the early church, they broke bread from house to house. They served the communion in celebration of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't served solely by some person who was the pastor but it was served freely among them all. And there's absolutely no reason at all why fathers, or mothers for that matter, can't serve communion in their homes. You say, oh, but I thought that was solely the role of the pastor, the minister. No, it's not. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. The purpose of the fivefold ministries, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, that we read from, uh, from the book of Ephesians, they're there to equip the church for the work of the ministry. And and I, I remember when I was in Hong Kong and we started pastoring in a church there, they invited us uh, to Emmanuel English Church. They want, It was all Chinese people, uh, but they wanted an English-speaking pastor. And all of these folks were very educated, um, just really wonderful folks. And by having an English-speaking pastor, they were able to have more effect in the community, uh, is how they reasoned. Because everybody wanted to learn from an English-speaking person and learn specifically the English language. When we got there, they, they told me that we don't serve communion to children. And I, I thought, What? No, we don't receive communion, serve communion to children. And they're not until they're baptized. And they can't be baptized until they're, I forget what it was, 15 years old or something. And so I reasoned with them and I said, well, are your children Christians? Well, yeah. Are they born again? Yes. Well, how is it possible for you to withhold from them worship? And the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which is what worship is. And to follow in obedience the command of Jesus to be baptized. And they really didn't have an answer for that. But it was their tradition that got into the church. And it's so unfortunate that these kind of rules and regulations can permeate the life of the church through traditions that really are not rooted in the scriptures. So the purpose, uh, so the Nicolaitans, which separates clergy from laity, if you will, is simply a false doctrine. I'm no better than anybody here. I, every person in this room has the same access to God that I have. We have the same ac access to his grace, to the power and the presence and the gifts of God's Holy Spirit. It's not my position as the messenger, if you will, is a role that I have to teach the scriptures and to lead the church. 
but it certainly doesn't put me in an elevated position in anybody's mind. Now, the second common understanding of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and it's quite possible that both of these are true. The second has to do with a deacon, and you'll find him in Acts chapter 6, I believe it's verse 5, and his name was Nicholas. And the Bible says he was a proselyte. In other words, he had been a part of Greek religion with all of the false gods, and he had converted to Judaism. He had become a Jew, a proselyte to the Jewish faith. And then when the gospel was preached, he became a Christian. So he left his Jewish faith to follow Jesus. And it's thought that Nicholas, because he was so rooted in Greek mythology and the false gods of the Greeks, that he introduced some of that into the church. And Jesus said, I hate it. I just hate that. Why? Because there's so many things that vie for our understanding of spirituality. All sorts of ideas have crept into our culture, to our society, that are spiritual. The worship of Mother Earth, the uh, calling on ancestors, praying to ancestors, and all of these things are just part and parcel of our society. Even the kinds of things that go back to uh, Eastern worship and Eastern practice, even things like yoga, which are rooted in Eastern religion. And you say, well, it's just, it's just a form of meditation. Wait a minute. If it's close, even close to the things that God, of, that God hates, should you participate in it? Maybe you need to do some research, some studying as to what it really is, what its origins are, and what it signifies. Well, that's the doctrine of uh, uh, the Nicolaitans. Uh, where am I? Okay, which one was that? Oh, that was the third one. The fourth one, chapter 2, verse 20. It's the church at Thyatira. And uh, Jesus writes through the messenger, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things offered to idols. Now, we don't really know who the person Jezebel was in the Thyatiran church. Uh, so we know who Jezebel was back in the book of 1 Kings, uh, but we don't know if there was actually literally a woman named Jezebel in the Thyatiran church, or if it's just a, a woman of the character and influence of the Old Testament Jezebel. So the Bible really doesn't say it, doesn't really identify her. And she calls herself a prophetess. So she claims to hear from God. She claims to have a word from God. But at the same time, her character betrays what true prophecy and true revelation from God is. Um, back in the story of Jezebel in 1 Kings, she came from a pagan culture. Uh, I, um, 
he, her father was the king of Tyre and Sidon. So it, it came from a, a religion, a country that worshipped false gods. And she became married uh, to Ahab, um, who was a king in Israel. Uh, she was an idolater, so she brought idol worship. She actually got her husband uh, to start worshiping idols. And uh, so she took people away from the worship of the true living God and offered alternatives. And she was highly gifted, very persuasive. She was very artful. My, she was creative. Uh, she was very, very, very good at accomplishing uh, the power that she wanted to have for herself and, and asserting those powers. She was unscrupulous in her methods, but she was revered as someone who was important in the church. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful what voices you hear. Be careful when somebody comes along and says, I have heard from God, or you've gone on the internet, you've listened to some message. What is their character? Who are they submitted to? What compromises have they made in their life? Make sure you understand that before you accept lock, stock, and barrel the things that they're saying, even if what they're saying is true. Bad things in the church. Wow. There's lots of them uh, in these days in which we live. Fifth, in Sardis... Um, <laughs> This is chapter 3, verse 1. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. You know, I, as I read these things, I personalize them. I do a lot of work. I'm a busy person. I, I'm involved just about every day of the week in, in uh, ministry. In fact, probably every day of the week for the most part. Um, and so I work hard. And so do many of you. You have jobs not necessarily in the church, but you work hard. And you you do it for a purpose. You're supporting your family. Or if it's in church work, you're, you're diligent in doing things for the kids, for the teens, for just the whole life of the church, helping it to keep together. And so we can be busy, 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 busy doing good stuff. But at the same time, we can be spiritually dead. We've lost the passion for prayer. We've lost the passion for reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures. And so we become spiritually dead even though we are physically alive and involved in the work of the church. It's a bad thing. The sixth thing, in Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 15, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold, or cold or hot. It's the same, it's the same um, church. It's just the next verse down uh, where it says, I know your works. So there, first, you have a name that you are alive, but really you're dead. Uh, and... Uh, I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. And, and Joanna did a great job of explaining the meaning of that when she spoke on the seven churches a few weeks ago. I wish you were one or the other. 
And again, she did a great job of describing what that meant. Um, hot or cold, up and down, in or out. Diligent to be in church, and then suddenly we drop off because other things happen, and then we come back later on where we're, we're, it's like we're jumping around in our experience in a radical kind of a, an erratic, I mean, kind of way in which we lack consistency. We lack, there's a revival coming, there's preachers coming, and we want the church to come and pray, so many come and pray, but after the meetings, it drops off. There could be so many different ways in which this happens. It can be in your own life, as in your own family, that your behavior is erratic, that you're so into it, and so, you know, wanting to just really have a good, strong family life, but then the next thing you know, your tongue is sharp and abusive, and you disengage. Um, I wish you were. I wish you were hot. Is what Jesus is saying. I don't want you to be in the middle of things, erratic, unpredictable. Seventh, the church. Um, that was the seventh one. Uh, oh, chapter three, verse seventeen. Uh, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So, um, the Laodicean church was a church that had lots of wealth. Um, They probably bought off the Roman authorities. We'll give you money if you don't throw us in jail because of our faith in Jesus. And so they, they made compromises when it came with money. Uh, and uh, they loved wealth. They loved to have the best house in the whole city. They loved to drive the best chariot and have the nicest horse with the most dazzling halter all kinds of nice trinkets and things on the harnesses and things that they had of their horses. They just loved to celebrate what they had and to get more and more and more and more. And the more they did it, the fancier their church looked, the better things looked. They just were, well, prim and proper. It was just like, wow, this is an amazing social group, an amazing church. But he says, you can have things like that and pursue wealth and money as it actually becomes a god. Jesus called it the, the god of mammon. And he said, you can become wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You think you're clothed with the best, but actually you're really naked. Your shame is exposed. Bad things in the church. And you notice there's seven of them that I've listed. You could actually extract a few more or t- bring a couple to uh, them. But, but the idea of the seven is the idea of complete. Seven candlesticks, seven churches, seven stars, seven letters, seven bad things, and now seven good things. First... Ephesus, this church that lost its first love. 
chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Tell me, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. He said, "Woo, that's a good church. If you were looking for a church and you found a congregation that was involved in all those things, you'd say, finally, I have found the church I want to be a part of. And uh, you wouldn't be really that wrong. Those are praiseworthy things. Works. Labor. So good things. But the cost to do those good things. Your patience. In other words, you keep persevering till the job gets done. You cannot bear things that are evil. So you wouldn't tolerate a Jezebel. You have tested those who say they are apostles, and you found them liars. And how did they test them? How did they do that? Well, obviously, through their understanding of the gospel, their understanding of the word of God. You've persevered, you have patience, and you have labored for my name's sake, and you've not become weary. Wow. Those are good things. Second, the Smyrna church. I know your works, the tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan. Interesting expression. We'll look at that perhaps at some time in the future. So here's a church that has gone through intense tribulation. Uh, They're poor. At least they think they are. Jesus says you're rich. Well, they might be poor in the things of this world, but they're rich in faith and perseverance and grace. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews. I know the stuff you hear every day. The attacks on your mind and your emotions that happen to you. It seems without anything abating. It's just always coming increased, increased waves. And people are dying because of it. Dying as martyrs. And it's like Satan is in, in, he's enthroned himself in religion. And so the attack against you is a religious attack. And yet it's also from Satan. But you've persevered. I know how you've overcome all of these things and have been true to me. Well, <laughs> all through the book of Revelation, You'll find these these expressions to those that have overcome, I will give. We overcame by, we overcame here, we overcame there. The testimony of the book of Revelation, there's so many streams that flow through this book, and one of them is overcoming. (laughs) And I think of the the song that uh, was sung so often in, in the times of Martin Luther King Jr., and since then, we shall overcome. And, uh, wow, powerful. The third thing, Pergamos, I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. 
Oh, so in Smyrna, where the synagogue of Satan was, in Pergamos, where Satan's throne is. So where Satan had absolute authority and control in the city. Evil reigned. It expressed itself in every phase of the culture. And yet, I, I know your works and where you dwell. And Jesus is commending them, saying, Listen, you're living in a hard place, but your works show your faithfulness to me. And I bless, I bless you for it. When it, the battle gets the toughest, when every evil thing come against you, or you think it's every possible evil, there is the blessing of the Father, the commendation of God, the commendation of Jesus. It says, I know where you are. I know what you're doing. And uh, then in another chat, as we go on, not today, but future, some of the promises that come to them as a result of that. Fourth, Pergamos. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days when, in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So, the synagogue of Satan, the throne of Satan, the dwelling place of Satan. Uh, Jesus sees things as they are. The satanic influences that are everywhere present. And they attack the believer. They attack your authority. They attack your faith. They attack your home where you dwell. But you've held fast in my name. Good things. Good things. Holding fast. Confessing Jesus as the one through whom we overcome. Fifth, Thyatira, I know your works. Notice how often this expression, I know your works. He sees what you do. He sees the efforts you make. Your love and your service and your faith and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. <laughs> so instead of starting off with all kinds of zeal and vigor, and then kind of seeing it slip and abate and go down. He says, no, it's going up. You've worked hard at the beginning, but you're working even harder as the stresses and the strains and the pressures increase. Whew. Uh, Sardis, chapter 3, verse 4, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Hmm. It's the little foxes that spoil the vines. It's the little things that defile us. It's the temptations that seem rather innocuous, not that significant, that we fall prey to, that start to tarnish the purity and the love and the grace that Jesus has put in our hearts. And here's a church that have not defiled their garments. They have been meticulous when it comes to walking in the purity of the gospel. And last, the church of Philadelphia. Uh, I know your works. 
See, I have set before you an open door. Again, I know your works. And no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You have kept your word and not denied my name. I know your works. You've worked and worked and wondered. Will it ever get better? The stresses and the pressures of life seem to increase every day. Again, how can I go on? How can I go on? And yet you see, there's an open door. You might not see it right now, but you will. And he's not just talking about his return or heaven. He's talking about the present. That Yes, Jesus is coming, and that will be the most wonderful of doors that open for the church. But right in the here and now, there, no temptation has taken you, the Bible says, but such is as common to man. But God is faithful, faithful and will, with every temptation, make a way of escape that you can bear it. There is a way. There is a door that will open for you if you keep pressing on. How many would say, oh, I'd just love for a door to open for me right now in the things I'm facing? You don't have to put up your hand. Just kind of say yes to Jesus under your breath. Well, I'm going to close with this. How's our time? Is that daylight savings time or? You don't know. Okay. Because if it is, I have another hour. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about first love. It's kind of the watershed. It goes right back to the very first church. I have this against you, you've lost your first love. Now, when it comes to our first love, uh, oftentimes, in fact, most people that I've ever heard says, well, that's, that's like when you're first married. And you just, oh, you, if you're at work, you can't wait till work is over so you can get home to be with your sweetheart. Or, you know, it's just like, oh, and you just want to be with all the time and the affection, the love, the, all of the stuff you do together. And it's just full of zeal and, oh, wow. The world revolves around the love that you have for another person. And uh, in Christian terms, and then after a while that kind of abates, and, and uh, you know, your, your husband is six hours late getting home from work. Oh, I wonder where he is. It's like, oh, you didn't really notice till now. <laughs> well, maybe not quite. But uh, you, it doesn't just hold the same women wigger, the same, the same enthusiasm that it once did. Well, uh, that then applies to the church. I could hardly wait to get to church. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And so we came running with gladness. We were made sure we were early because we didn't want to miss a thing. We wanted to be there to be a part of, to do, and, and then to serve and to work. And it's just like we love God. We love Jesus. We loved his, the Holy Spirit. We love the work of God. And then after a while, we get a little weary. And we kind of, yeah, you look back and say, oh, you know, I don't do what I used to do. I don't witness as much. 
I don't, I don't, I just lost so much. I've lost my first love. Well, that's very true. And if that's happened, then there are things that you need, you need to repent of. It's very much a part of the messages of the books. But I'm not so sure that that's what the main meaning is. I, I think that it has more to do with priority than it has to do with a trajectory. Priority. Who do you love first? Who's first place in your life? Who do you set above everyone and everything else? Is it Jesus? If it's not, then he is not your first love. And maybe there was a time when he was number one. But then other things started to take his place. Your pursuits were not like a deer that pants after the water brook. So my soul pants after you, O Lord. It's not that so much as it is. I guess I've got to get to church today because it's my duty and my responsibility. I should read my Bible. I should have a, a short prayer. You know, sometime during the day I need to. And so after a while, this, that, and the other thing become first. And Jesus said, I was number one once in your life. And yeah, that might be true that there was all kinds of enthusiasm and, and excitement about serving me, but that wasn't the issue so much as it was the priority you gave to me. Have we left our first love? Where is Jesus in this church? Is he first? Or is he somewhere else? Where is Jesus in your life individually? Is he first? This is the watershed issue. The good things that happen, as we talked about very quickly, happen as a result of Jesus being first. The bad things that can happen in church come as a result of slippage from that place of priority. And Jesus becomes relegated to a lesser place. He's Lord of all, or really he's not Lord at all, someone said. Worship team, would you come? As they're coming, would you bow your heads with me and just for a few moments of privacy? If you're here this morning, you'd say, Bruce, I, I have not, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not really a Christian. I, I know this has not really been a message where I've presented the gospel, the three steps of, of how you become a Christian or whatever many steps a person might say there are. Uh, but nevertheless, the Holy Spirit is here and you realize, well, there's stuff in your life that are hurtful and damaging you and you need to change. There needs to be a, a, something new has to happen. And you'd say, I need to begin a faith journey with Jesus. I need to give him my life. I need to become a Christian. And you'd say, Bruce, would you just pray for me? Just hold your hand up real quick. And you can put it down then. And uh, okay. All right. Okay, God bless you. You can put it down. Uh how many here this morning would say, Bruce, my dear, I, 
I have, boy, I've just, I've just felt the Holy Spirit speak to me. I'm not going to ask you this morning what specific area it might be in, but you just say, I've really heard the voice of Jesus coming through uh, these letters to the seven churches. And I tell you something, uh, God is preparing an end time church. He's preparing a church that is after his, his own heart. He's coming for a bride that is without spot or wrinkle. And he invites all of us to be a part of that and to rise in the victory and the overcoming power of Jesus. He'd say, oh, God has spoke to me this morning. Just wave your hand at me. Would you do that? I hope everybody raises their hand. I wouldn't want one Christian to, uh, well... Stand, will you? And we're going to take some time to worship now. We're not in a rush. There's going to be a couple or maybe even three songs, and the Sunday school teachers downstairs have been told that they can bring their children up any time through this segment. Uh, so they're not going to be coming up right this minute. Um, uh, and um, so you can just enjoy the worship of the Lord. And if your friends, do, if your children do need to come up now, that's fine. Um, Let's worship the Lord together.